0: Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack an influential piece of writing from the past in order to make it more accessible in the present. Today, we're looking at the spiritual writings of John Muir by John Muir. Muir was an American naturalist, botanist, philosopher, and environmental activist who lived during the second half of the 19th century. He's probably most known for being the co-founder of the Sierra Club, But he also was a deeply religious man and wrote about spiritual matters throughout his life. And these letters were written over the course of his adult life between 1867 and 1915. Today, helping me unpack these letters was Mark McCann. We had a great time exploring Mir's thoughts on solitude, the fear of the unknown, Christianity, Taoism, pantheism, the call of nature, gratitude, finding God in a thunderstorm, and the revitalizing effects of wilderness on the body and spirit. We actually recorded this conversation up in the mountains near Mark's home in Connecticut, Uh, so that was really great. And these ideas were a lot of fun to explore. They definitely helped shift the way I think about nature and my relationship to it, so I hope that you get some value out of them as well, and I hope that our conversation helps you understand these ideas better. All right, so without any further ado, here's my conversation with Mark on the spiritual writings of John Muir. All right, we're sitting here on a beautiful overlook in Windsor, Connecticut. Is that where we are? Yeah,
1: Probably uh, closer to Bloomfield, but... uh, Okay, this is definitely
0: the coolest place i've ever recorded a podcast we felt like talking about john muir we should definitely be out in nature and so yeah we found this nice overlook we just saw a turkey vulture pass over over overhead and um yeah had a nice little hike this morning now we're here to talk about john muir so we met actually around this time last year yes um on the appalachian trail Mm -hmm. which is really cool uh Kind of a funny night we met yes. met somebody whose trail name was Smoky Smokey Bear. Smoky Bear. And they called him Smokey Bear because he smoked like a chimney and snored like a bear. And, and yeah,
1: he lived up to his name that <laughs> night, so <laughs> Yeah. I
0: don't anyway. think even my dad snores as much as or as loud as this guy. It was insane. We all were in the same shelter with this guy. Um yeah, bit of a trail. Uh, legend on the trail apparently
1: yeah and he was he was louder than the storm that night too it was storming
0: that's why we were all in the shelter in the first so, place
1: but
0: uh, but yeah and then the next day you and i hiked together for a little bit and we were just kind of chatting um and we got into what i thought was a great conversation i was actually reading john muir at the time because i was planning on hiking the john muir trail and all of the fires kind of made that uh, out of the question, so I last minute switched and did a section of the Appalachian Trail um, so th- yeah, I kind of had some of these ideas in my head, and we were kind of got into talking about nature and God and spirituality and, and whatnot, and you you were telling me that you were actually writing a book about your um, your kind of spiritual journey and your experiences in nature and how that has related to your your faith and whatnot mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah yeah. i just ever since i've i've restarted
1: hiking because i used to Mm. hike when i was younger but then uh as i got older i I just took it up again and uh i just found that being out here is almost like a metaphor for life Mm. you know for at least for your spiritual life because it's it has you know ups and downs and lows you know the valleys (laughs) and the mountain tops yeah um but what i found was what i really liked most i think about it is that it it's not the goals i think a lot of hikers kind of focus so much on goals mm. that they forget that it's it's the journey itself that's exciting yeah. the sights the sounds the smells the the struggles all of that kind of contributes to the joy mm. that you get in the hike and so i just started reflecting more and more as, as i went on a hike each hike to to just sort of consider how, how is this speaking to me about my life, about my spiritual life, about just life in general? And, and I just yeah. found that. And I think that's why we connected so well, just because we're both sort of on that same page of just seeing mm. hiking as, as just sort of a way to help us appreciate the journey of life.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's something that hiking's taught me that as well. Well, I was thinking maybe we could back up a little bit and just do like a little quick summary of John Muir's life. Okay. Just to give everybody kind of a a background of you know who this guy was, because he's one of these characters who it's it's hard to kind of talk about his writing without knowing a little bit about his life because um you know this piece is comprised of a lot of letters and journal entries where he is talking about these events that are very specific to his life. so it's kind of hard to just talk about the ideas in the in the abstract all right, so he you know it's kind of funny he's like kind of Mr. America guy but he actually was born in Scotland uh in 1838 but he immigrated to Wisconsin when he was 11 and was raised uh calvinist by in pretty pretty strict father from from what i could tell um he was only allowed to like read secular literature like in the wee hours of the morning um then he went to the University of Wisconsin for 2 years studying botany and had like a summer botanical excursion and that kind of whetted his appetite for adventure. Uh, He dropped out of college and was working at a wagon wheel factory and had an experience where I think like something from the wagon like shot off and hit him in the eye and nearly blinded him. And he was um, like he couldn't see for like close to a month or something. And that was kind of like his, as he puts it, kind of his like wake-up call from God telling him like, hey, you kind of have this yearning to get out into nature, go on these this adventure, and like the way he puts it, God has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons. So the, the next kind of phase of his life after this near-blindness incident is kind of his adventurous years. So he starts, he kicks it off with this thousand mile walk from Kentucky to Florida. And again, this was like in 1867. So (laughs) there was no trails. Like he's just bushwhacking through the, through the woods. Uh, So it was, yeah, super, super dangerous. Um, And yeah, he, he hiked to Florida. He got, he actually got pneumonia on this trip, almost died was like passed out in the woods for several days and some people picked him up like put him back to health. Then he went to Cuba. Uh, then he sailed to San Francisco, became a sheep herder and then walked to Yosemite, uh, worked in a sawmill and spent his summers just up in the Yosemite mountains, just taking in nature, writing about the plants and the wildlife and whatnot. And, um, yeah, Ralph Waldo Emerson also kind of visited him during this period. So this is kind of this period of his life that I think he's probably most known for. This is the kind of wild man that he is depicted as where he was just, you know, the truly, you know, living in the wilderness.
1: Mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of funny you say wild man, but uh, you read what he writes about it and there's such mm-hmm. a gentleness about it. Mm. that that i that i just find comforting because it just i don't know it just says something about what the roughness does to you you know it's, mm. it sort of reminds me of like um water over stones you know the water just keeps rushing over stones and what do you get you, you get smooth stones and that and i think like the the roughness that he went through just made him a more and more gentle individual
0: well and on the point about his kind of gentleness he talks about when he went to Cuba on this ship from he went from Florida to Cuba on this ship and there was a storm and so like all the people on the ship were huddled underneath and he was like he had to like convince the captain to just let him up on the deck because he just wanted to be in this storm and basically like tie himself to the mast and just experience it and there's another famous essay it actually wasn't in this collection but it's Uh, I think it's called A a Windstorm in the Forest. Yeah, A Windstorm in the Forest, where he says, quote, When the storm began to sound, I lost no time in pushing out into the woods to enjoy it. After cautiously casting about, I made a choice of the tallest of a group of Douglas spruces. I experienced no difficulty in reaching the top of this one, and never before did I enjoy so noble an exhilaration of motion. And... I don't know about you but I've hiked in some storms and some lightning and when the weather starts to turn the last thing I'm do- doing is like looking for the tallest tree to climb. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> so
0: um so he definitely has some thrill seeking but my at least reading of this was it didn't seem like it was just thrill seeking for like thrill seeking sake. It still seemed like these kind of experiences were him trying to get close to God or whatever yeah. you want to call it first thing I thought about was like Lieutenant
1: Dan and, and Forrest, Forrest Gump yeah, up yeah. on the mast and, and just kind of having it out with God and I know it's sort of a different kind of circumstance but it, it's just I, I think it's almost like he's just like I know you could like you could like take me out mm. you know so whatever like I'm going to surrender to that yeah. and I, I, I think about my own life I'm not too willing to surrender you know to whatever you know God wants to do in my life, I, 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 you know, I go kicking and screaming a lot of times. I think a lot of us do. We we want our comfort comfortable life. That's why I like, I like the woods because the woods they take me out of that comfort zone and yeah. and. Like you have to experience it. I mean, when a storm comes by, I'm always kind of thinking, okay, when the hair bristles on the back mm-hmm. of my neck, I got to get down in the crouch position and, you know, get out, get away from the tall trees. And, you know, I'm glad I'm in the shelter when it's storming and and all of that. And so I don't know if I would, like you said, climb a tree and say, have yeah. at me, Lord, or whatever. But I think it's it's still okay to to kind of feel that vulnerability and to yeah. enjoy it. You know, to enjoy being kind of in that vulnerable place and knowing that, you know, maybe you won't come through, but but trusting that you're going to come through it.
0: Mm. So. I, that's, that's definitely something I'm going to try to reflect on in my next lightning storm when I'm in the mountains. Because I've, I actually camped out last year when I was hiking part of the AT. Yeah, I was camp, camped out on the top of this mountain and I was the highest thing for like two miles. The storm wasn't supposed to hit till like the next day and afternoon. And was just full I was just full on lightning storm, and yeah, I'm just in like the lightning crouch position on my little mat, but it's also just like i'm v- like you said, very vulnerable, like there's nothing I can other than just kind of crouching here on my little sleep pad like I'm super vulnerable, yeah, and I you know
1: I have family members and friends who, who think I'm crazy for going out by myself, and mm. um, you know they'll call me on the trail and so we just want to check and make sure you're okay and and you know it it's I, I don't want, I wish you just go out with other people and I you know, I don't like when you go out on your own and and you you know, like I think what you said earlier, it's it's just it's the idea that, you know, I could die in my bed tonight, something could happen. I could die driving mm. home from from this hike. You know, anything is, could
0: happen. It is pretty incredible to You know, because I'll tell people when I come back from backpacking and they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you do that. But And recently, the people that said that to me were some of these other – I sell comedy tickets in Times Square. So some of the other sellers in Times Square were telling me, oh, I could never go out in the mountains. And I was just thinking, like, how much more dangerous it probably is selling comedy tickets in Times Square. And, like, you know, when you're actually looking at, like, statistics, your statistics of dying are probably much higher Oh, yeah. Um, In, you know, in New York City. But Mir actually, this was just a minor point he made, but he has an idea that basically, like, the things that scare us, scare us because they are foreign to us. Uh, He says, quote, I think that most of the antipathies which haunt and terrify us are morbid productions of ignorance and weakness. I have better thoughts of those alligators now that I have seen them at home. So he's speaking specifically about when he went, he had all these fears around alligators and then actually, when he actually went and saw the alligators out in the wild, like, then he was no longer afraid of them. Um, I don't I can definitely relate to that. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I think about so many, you know, the first time I went, well, re, re-went hiking, because I, like I said, I had been hiking before when I was younger, but uh, when I went again, I went on the Appalachian Trail totally unprepared. I had um like a school backpack i mm-hmm. had stuff bungeed to it people were very kind and didn't make fun of me and um i ended up starting very late I, I got out i was working a night shift and got out late and my wife insisted that i sleep and i kept saying i need to get there as early as i can because i have 10 miles to go to get to the shelter and so anyway I, it was like eight thirty 30 at night and i got stuck in the middle of the woods and had to just set up in the middle of the trail mm-hmm. and and this is like my first new experience of hiking And it really was just terrified to be out there. I don't know why. Yeah. You know, it was probably because it was foreign because I wasn't used to it. Every little twig snap was a bear. Mm -hmm. It was probably a mouse. Yeah. Uh, But the whole night I hardly got any sleep because I was just, it was so foreign. Now people say, how can you go out there and and sleep in the woods? And it's just like, because I'm comfortable. Yeah. You know, it's just, I've gotten so used to it. And I mean, I, you know, I'm aware of things, but I don't know. I don't worry as much anymore. It's just because I've, I've gotten comfortable, um, kind of, I don't know, maybe if it's more of a oneness with nature or whatever, but it, it's just a mm. more comfortable.
0: Well, yeah. And it's that idea that things generally are n- never going to be as scary as they are in our own imagination. And I, I was thinking this, this can even relate to something like death, you know, death is the ultimate unknown and the, the fear that surrounds death. And even, um, this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I think a lot of times, uh, there's a kind of fear around different kinds of people who we've never had experience with where it's just like, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody is, uh, afraid of black people or afraid of gay people. And they've never, they've never met a black person or a gay person. There's that kind of, the ignorance of never having contact with the individual causes a fear of it. Um, So yeah, I think this, it's, it's a big idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe we can continue on. So he comes back to live in Oakland for like 10 months. And then he goes back to Yosemite and this time it's not the same for him. So this was from the book. He said They said, something had changed. His effortless spiritual rapport with the Yosemite landscape eluded him. Dimmed by the long immersion in city life, no one of the rocks seemed to call me now, nor any of the distant mountains. Throughout these letters, he talks about this like being called to the mountains. And that's, that's his most famous quote. That's the f- first quote I ever heard was, the mountains are calling and I must come. And that kind of call went away when he tried to come back it just things weren't the same
1: yeah, and i kind of wonder if was it maybe what he was bringing with him you mm. know sort of was that maybe masking the call because i i think about when i haven't been hiking for a while and i've been sort of i get so caught up in life and um and i in you know in my comfort zone feeding my appetites and and just sort of living you know a little little less like the man I want to be. And then I when I get back out here, sometimes it takes a while to kind of get back into mm. the into the the zone or whatever you want to call it. But I, I think it's more like I need to take that whatever civilization is stuck on me and sort of shed it. Sort of yeah. like get rid of it, you know, the the kind of fat lazy comfortableness of of, of of being, you know,
0: where things are easy. The kind of domesticated, yes, aspect of yeah, your 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 comforts, your conveniences. I, I feel the same thing for sure. It's those transitions that are difficult. It's the transition into, you know, going into the woods. It's the transition of coming back. I know for me, because last year I did five weeks on the Appalachian Trail, and when I came back, it was I was kind of that like post-trail. I don't know if depression's too oh, yeah. strong of a word, but no, I did all. I was a little bummed and I just like didn't want to be inside and I was kind of you know, forced to be inside because I was working. But it's just after after being outside you know almost twenty four hours a day, you just like the roof just is, you know, repellent repellent.
1: Oh yeah, that no, that makes yeah. total sense. And uh I, I find a lot of people can't understand that.
0: Mm.
1: You know, it's sort of like they're kind of more like, why do you want to do this? How could you not want the comforts? And- yeah,
0: and it's interesting because he says that too. He says something along the lines, um, oh, he says, quote, it seems strange that everybody does not come at their call, meaning the mountains call. And I was wondering, do you think that's like a, temper- a temperament thing? Like there are certain temperaments that are more drawn to, you know, um, to be in nature, um, or do you think it has more to do with, like we said earlier, like if you've spent a good deal of time in the past out in nature, you're going to be more drawn to do it.
1: You know, I, I thought maybe it has to do a little bit with introversion and extroversion, you know, like, because here you're, you're alone, you you face your own loneliness. So I think you have to be kind of have a comfortableness with that. I'm an extreme mm. introvert, so, um, I can be out here And deal with that and I also think people have different kinds of callings you know I think writers have a calling musicians have a calling teachers have a calling and so you know there's certain places where people feel really comfortable based on their calling Um, so I don't know I don't know if it's a temperament thing or that's
0: an interesting angle I had not thought about the kind of um, one's uh, comfort in being alone with themselves as that that being a factor
1: oh I you know and that's it's I'm it's scary how comfortable I can be being by myself. And the thing is, in in the woods, it's it's sort of exponentially more intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I always I always talk to people about I, I call it the confessional of the woods. Mm-hmm. You know how Catholics will go into confession; they'll go into the the scary black box yeah. and just bear their soul to their confessor and receive absolution. And and like you have to you have to bear your soul. And being in the woods, you're totally vulnerable. You mm-hmm. can't hide from yourself. You can't make excuses for, for you know, your failures and things. It's it's all yeah. laid bare there. And so, in a sense, it's I find that I'm kind of I have to become very open to my flaws and failures, mm-hmm. and just sort of lay them bare before God and uh, accept sort of the absolution that comes, the assurance that it's okay. Yeah. Like that he lets me know that it's okay. It's okay that you fail. Um, you know, it's a forgivable offense. And and there's, you know, there's a lot of, of joy. It's very cleansing mm. to go through that. And um, just, like I said, just the sense of of just, you know, I have nowhere else to go. You know, yeah. I cannot lie my way out of, in my own head. You know, yeah. I can't pretend and make excuses for uh, what I'm going through. I know what my flaws are and they become very apparent in Mm. this weakened condition in the woods where I'm struggling to get up the next hill and everything.
0: So I love thinking about it as a confession. That's that's I I actually watched the show called Alone. It was one of these kind of survival shows. It's basically actual survivor where these people are just dropped in the middle of complete wilderness and have to just survive by themselves. And for a lot of them the biggest struggle is not, you know, finding water or getting food. It's being alone with themselves. And on the first season, there's this very dramatic episode where the guy basically has this confession, and you know, they because they they have the camera there, and he's he's just saying all, talking about, oh, these are my weaknesses, and you're seeing him just like breaking down, crying, and like this, yeah, this kind of purging, this kind of confession. When it's interesting hearing Muir talk about solitude too, because this was kind of something that he battled. Um, in one letter, he says. Quote, were it not for a thought now and then of loneliness and isolation, the pleasure of my existence would be complete. But then in some of these other letters, he says, quote, I felt not a trace of loneliness uh, while my friend, well, while he was gone. This is talking about his friend. He says, on the contrary, I never enjoyed grander company. The whole wilderness seems to be alive and familiar, full of humanity. The very stones seem talkative, sympathetic, brotherly. So yeah, it's it's interesting hearing that kind of juxtaposition where sometimes just being with nature uh, was enough to keep him company, and other times he he did kind of want that companionship. It mm-hmm. sounds like I, I would love to touch on the um, you know a lot of these pieces are about Muir's, uh, you know, Muir's spiritual writings, and Muir came from a pretty fundamentalist background. His father was very strict uh, Calvinist uh, Christian. And you can see kind of his spiritual beliefs changing throughout these letters. And he's an interesting figure because he he kind of maintains uh, very much like Christian language when he's speaking about God or his maker. But some of his thinking, at least towards the middle and end of his life, definitely... uh, breaks with some more fundamental readings of Christianity. And I would love to go through some of those ideas with you um, because, you know, as as a Christian yourself, like you've probably thought about a lot of this stuff a lot and seen these disagreements within the church and whatnot. As I understand it, the, the Bible teaches that the world and the animals and plants were made for man. And Muir kind of breaks with this. He says, quote, It never seems to occur to these far-seeing teachers that nature's objects in making animals and plants might possibly be first of all the happiness of each one of them, not the creation of all for the happiness of one. Why should man value himself as more than a small part of one great unit of creation? So I thought that was an interesting kind of break, from from maybe his more Christian roots mm-hmm. I don't know any any thoughts on on that passage or yeah that kind of
1: that kind of thing sometimes I'll get a little nervous about something like that and think, oh well that, you know is it is it that sort of smack of sort of universalism and and you know pantheism and things like that and I don't know and then on the other hand sometimes i I think about like uh, Francis of Assisi you know who used to go. Out in nature and um, preach sermons to the birds, mm. you know, and say he you know say you know you, your birds are are lucky because you know um, God takes care of you and feeds you and and obviously he's kind of saying this so the people nearby would hear what he's saying. But he you know he used to talk about like brother Moon and you know sister this mm, and brother that and and um, he he kind of he had a more openness I think to nature. I mean yeah, I don't have yeah. the a, like this strong sense of like everything was made for me and I'm the the yeah. chief of God's creations and it's all, you know, because then I think then I don't, how do I appreciate just the beauty of something in and of mm. itself? You know, like I, I uh, i am very big on the little things of the hike. I love the big mountain views and just the majesty of it all and and the the power of storms and all of that thing. But I also love like just watching a, you know, a spider weave a web and yeah. um, you know seeing like I said a little lizard on the ground or grasshopper or something like that or watching leaves rustle or even like the embers in a fire and mm. when the fire dies down at the end of the night in a campfire and um, there's like a beauty that's kind of seems isolated from who I am that doesn't seem to be serving me in the sense um, mm. it's it's i don't know it's just kind of like i think of god sort of laughing creation into existence sometimes just like yeah. sheer joy just
0: it's interesting you use that metaphor he uses a similar metaphor at, at, at one point he kind of talks about these different aspects of nature as being god's laughs as god's hands as god's music um a lot of this kind of imagery and also on that point of you know you're saying like um feeling the same kind of appreciation for something like a giant mountain landscape or just like a small leaf in front of you he Mir has an interesting idea about seeing all of nature on more or less the same plane and kind of not existing on these like higher and lower forms he says quote what is higher what is lower in nature we speak of higher forms higher types in the field of scientific inquiry now, all of the individual things or beings into which the world is wrought are sparks of the divine soul, variously clothed upon the flesh, leaves or the harder tissue called rock, water. All of these varied forms, high and low, are simply portions of God. Interestingly enough, this made me think of um, Chief Seattle. Uh, he says, in his kind of famous speech, he said, quote, "This we know." The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. And yeah, a lot of these ideas to me struck me to be both indicative of views of like indigenous people of America, which is kind of sad. I actually learned while researching this that he had some prejudiced views towards uh, Native Americans and has kind of come under fire that recently, which is a shame and kind of ironic because... I think his view on nature maps onto a lot of uh, the views that, you know, like this passage I just read from chief Seattle and some of the stuff I read from um, like the Tao Te Ching with like Lao Tzu and like Taoism is also very much, very much in this vein. And I think it's,
1: uh, we can get so afraid of things like that as Christians that, um, that we don't even want to look at it and explore it. You know, one of the, the my favorite mystics was Thomas Merton, and he, you know, he spent a lot of times with different mystics from from different religions, and um, a lot of people like that would bother them. Say mm-hmm. that he he would, you know, look into it and explore it. And I I don't, uh, like I said, I there's probably sort of a built in fear just because of the way we're raised, you know, in our faith to to think that anything that seems foreign might be, you know, might, you know, insult God and, and I don't know, I, I I guess I'd like to think that, you know, we can at least be open to, to hearing it and understanding it. And a lot of, you know, a lot of things, you know, they make sense. I mean, I think you can go like to the Bible and find, find a lot of this Mm. in there. You can find a lot of ideas in there. And I, you know i've always kind of believed that the biggest mountain and the and the smallest leaf are in god's mind like that there isn't a huge there's not some difference yeah. you know like that, cuz everything's you know composed of molecules and atoms and mm. you know and it's it all has a purpose you know it's it's like every everything has a purpose everything was created and uh, it's all it's all woven together and yeah. uh, and it's it's like i think i kind of look at it more as almost like a responsibility to appreciate its beauty more than like this beauty is serving us maybe mm. it's more of a you know we should be called to appreciate what god has given us in this life and especially the the beauty of nature
0: so yeah well, in a few more quotes that kind of bring this idea home from Muir. He says, quote, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And then he says, rocks and water are words of God, and so are men. We all flow from one fountain soul, all are expressions of one love. And, um, yeah, it also made me think, I recently watched this uh lecture from alan watts and he was speaking about taoism and chinese philosophy and uh watts shows this portrait by this chinese painter named mai wan and what's interesting about this picture is it's called poet drinking by moonlight but it looks just like a landscape of a mountain and you have to look really hard to see the poet drinking by the river in this landscape and he says quote you'd think it was just a landscape painting but that tiny man lost in the landscape is representative and symbolic of the whole attitude of the chinese mind and the chinese philosophy to the harmony of man and nature man not dominating nature nature but fitting into it and feeling perfectly at home
1: well you sort of think of like van gogh you know and how his paintings kind of sort of almost merge mm. sort of reality with what's beyond, you know, when you think about that. Yeah. And, and it's just, I don't know, I, th- I, I think it does come down to perspective to how we look at things. And that's why I think certain people are more comfortable in the wilderness than other people because they just, I don't know, I think the veil is, is torn back, you know, and they, they're, they're just able to appreciate you know the beauty of of life and god and what goodness is and and what surrender is and all of those things just because they, there's there's is sort of a oneness that we experience when we're out here
0: yeah and Mir talks a lot about how he spent his life seeking god both in church and kind of scripture and in nature and he says Quote, I will confess that I take more intense delight from the reading the power and goodness of God from the things which are made than from the Bible. The two books, however, harmonize beautifully and contain enough of divine truth for the study of all eternity. And just one more on this point. He says, it is by the grandest of all the special temples of nature I was ever permitted to enter. And... I thought it was interesting that he uses the word temple to describe being out in nature. And I think maybe at another point, he says something about a cathedral. And two, two thoughts on that. One, there's an effect called the cathedral effect, where being in a room with a higher ce- ceiling causes different parts of the brain to communicate. So like when we are in a room with a very low ceiling, we tend to have thoughts that are very narrow and sharp and kind of analytical, whereas we do more kind of expansive thinking and there's more areas of the brain that are making like these connections when we're in a room with a higher ceiling. It's called the cathedral effect. And I would assume that also applies to when we're in the mountains, like looking over like this beautiful horizon we're looking at, it's extremely expansive and I would, like, if we were to speak to a neuroscience, I, I would imagine that they would probably say that we are able to do these a lot more expansive thinking. Um, and that is, I think, one of the reasons that cathedrals and churches, a lot of churches are built with the high ceilings, is it brings about in us that sense of awe and wonder and that very, like, expansive feeling. And any, mm-hmm. any thoughts on that no, that idea? That's yeah. right. I,
1: I didn't really, I didn't really know about that.
0: Yeah, we I recently about, learned about it.
1: I guess to sort of mm, understand it, like it makes total sense. I understand it intuitively because hmm. you know being out here, you know, it's it's sort of like I I have a, a sense of my smallness and my largeness at the same time. Sort of mm-hmm. like I have a sense of how small I am and the vastness of creation, but I also like I have a sense of of just being loved
0: mm.
1: and cherished by a good God who made all of this, so I, 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 you know, in in that sense, I guess I feel largeness, you know. But it's probably more just it's it's a sense of awe or whatever. But I, I think, I don't know. I th- like I said, I think yes, maybe people have been spent too many too many days indoors, yeah. and their and their focus is too narrow. I don't know. I, I but I love. Being out here, you know, I just—it's like I can't get enough of looking at this. The only thing that would make this better is if it were maybe, you know, three or four weeks later when the, you know, it's just a blaze of color, yeah. Fall change, yeah. That's that. That you know, but even this is just still, just so beautiful and peaceful, and and it makes problems. We're making our listeners jealous
0: right now. Oh, I'm sure. We're looking at the mountains right now (laughs) in Connecticut. Yeah.
1: One thing I was thinking about is I think I have a better appreciation for. Kind of the oneness we can feel with nature because I'm t- my theology is very incarnational. You right. know, as a Christian, I understand like I, I just like am in awe of the whole idea of God becoming man. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think a lot of I think a lot of Christian churches don't like focus enough on that. You know, they kind of focus on, it's the word and and coming to faith and the things you need to do to to believe. And I'm not minimizing any of that. What I'm saying is we don't, like, we don't think about this, like, if the God of the universe becoming a human being and, you know, spitting into mud and making a new pair of eyes for a man born blind. Like, that's interesting. You know, one person said, you know, squeezing himself into bread, you know like in, in communion and things like that, um, using ordinary everyday objects of nature to express himself to the world. You know, just the fact, like I said, of becoming a human being, like we've just grown so accustomed to that. We don't, you know, we see the little baby at Christmas, little nativity displays, and we don't think of how incredibly awesome that should make us feel if we believe that, if we, you know, if we understand it. So I, th- I think, because I, my theology is very incarnational, like everything's very sensual, you know, in the sense of and like what I can smell and taste and see and hear. And, and so everything has a, has a deeper meaning. Like I, I, one thing I've written about is like, I always talk about like campsite meals being like sacramental in mm. nature. Yep. Like you, you know, like the same, like if I made this meal at home, I might think this is a pretty bland meal. This isn't that special. Yeah. But in front of the campfire, after a really hard day of you know kind of soul searching, physical exertion to get to this mm-hmm. goal, all of a sudden this meal takes on a higher significance. Sure. There's sort of incarnational yeah. value, spirit like the spirit you know in that in that meal, and, and it becomes like I said, it becomes sort of sacramental. Conversations take on a deeper meaning, you know, um, just the, the sort of fellowship that's shared. Um, just looking at things like looking at a fire, and that, and and things that we take for granted that mm. we don't have because we're out in the middle of the woods. All of a sudden, it, it it has a deeper meaning. And like I said, I I just see it as like an incarnational God in flesh kind of meaning that I mm. that I can see
0: much more clearly out here. You you kind of hinted at like the the feeling of gratitude is kind of goes along with that, and. um Muir talks a lot about, like, he ends a lot of these letters kind of giving thanks to God and, and just saying how grateful he is to be witnessing some of this incredible stuff. And that that kind of resonated with me. Um, he says, uh, quote, I am very, very blessed. I am rich, rich beyond measure. And he says, Re- rejoicing in his glory, I gladly, gratefully, hopefully pray I must see the view from the high Sierra again. That was one of the cool things I thought we did before we started when we were eating lunch. Uh, you said the little prayer and kind of, you know, you were thanking God for this uh, ability or opportunity that we have to yeah. have a conversation and have some food and go go, th- go on a hike. Yeah, but yeah. they're...
1: they're- quote-unquote tiny things but they're not they're really large Mm. incredible sort of universe changing experiences we don't think of them that way but they really are they really like you know to uh, i always thought there's you know Christ said to people, like, greater works you will do, and everybody thinks that means like that they had to be like these big earth-shattering miracles, and I'm thinking sometimes, well, maybe the greater work is to change somebody's perspective mm. on something, to get them from hating to loving, you know, to get them to appreciate um, the little simple things and, and what that means, and to, to be able to, you know, like Paul used to say, "I've I've learned to be content you know, in plenty and in want. Like, it's the same. So yeah. he's, he's, you know, and I, I, that's why I like hiking. Because Most I. It's like
0: uh, Muir says he was content with just his tea and his flour. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, that's all I need. And <laughs> I've, I've, I just, I think it's just comes from that
1: inner sense of, of appreciating everything from, from the, like said the big things, quote unquote, big things to the little big things. Mm. You know, and, and I just I, I just love getting caught up in all of that. And, and it's just, you know, like I said, I, it makes me sad when I go home and I, I just, I try to hold on to it. It's almost like waking from a dream. You know, when you start, you kind of feel, oh, what was a dream. It was such a great dream. And then you're forgetting about it. And sometimes that's kind of how it feels coming back to the quote unquote real world. Yeah. As, as you kind of start to forget the lessons that you learned. And so I go as often as I can because I want those lessons to really become so much a part of me that they don't get lost mm. in the, in the clutter and clamor of civilization.
0: So Well, and that's a great point. He talks a lot about what you just said, kind of these, like he, I, I the way I termed it was kind of these like healing properties of nature on either the physical health or the spiritual health. Uh, he says, Quote, climb the mountains and get their good tidings. Nature's peace will flow into you as sunshine flows into trees. The winds will blow their own freshness into you and the storms their energy, while cares will drop off like autumn leaves. And then this last quote, this was actually the one of the quotes that I read that made me want to read more mirror. I think it was in a, the documentary Mile, Mile and a Half, which is about these folks that hike the John Muir Trail. Quote, thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wildness is a necessity, and that mountain parks and reservations are useful not only as fountains of timber and irrigating rivers, but as fountains for life. The same way we kind of think about going on a diet or like a juice cleanse, Muir kind of thought of like he was living in uh, Oakland for like 10 months and was like, I need to get the hell out of here and get back in the mountains. And he frames it very much as like going on a diet or like going on a cleanse. And I know for me, I just got off the Appalachian trails just out for eight days, did like a hundred miles. And it was a lot less of this kind of crazy immersive experience that it was last year, but it felt very much just kind of like a, like a bath maybe like a spiritual bath or, you know, I just felt, I came back recharged, refreshed, ready to get started on my projects again. Um, And, you know, I've been working in Times Square. I was just feeling like very kind of like on edge and like just needed to get out of the city. And you're in a different position. You're like a five minute drive from these gorgeous mountains. I kind of uh, need to binge my, my nature when I can get it. But you seem to have a more consistent healthy diet it seems like yeah i try
1: i try to get out but i i will say i do i do kind of crave more of those longer experiences Mm. you know getting out for a day is is good but i i do kind of like the couple of days and and i think we were talking earlier before we we started the podcast that just i was talking about i had a daughter getting married and a daughter going to school and a son buying a house over and all this kind of taking place over the summer and the stress of all of that mm. i didn't get out as much i didn't even i, I bike a lot i didn't even get out of my bike to go riding because i was just i mean it's just and did you notice it like on your oh absolutely yeah. i totally just exhausted um struggling to to keep weight off just all these kinds of things like i said, just. Um, less able to to be disciplined in my life you know disciplined Mm -hmm. about eating or or praying or just finding myself treating people with less uh, gentleness and grace and all of that being being more tense all these things happening and and just little problems becoming mountains of problems. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why, I, yeah, we do need to come out here because then we can hold them up to these big mountains and even to, like I said, the little things, the little rocks.
0: Well, and I think Muir would say that that kind of, um, you know, getting more and more tense or this kind of like civilized life, that can kill us. Or And he says, quote, fear not thy mountain passes they will kill care, save you from deadly apathy, set you free, and call forth every faculty into vigorous and enthusiastic action. Even the sick should try these so-called dangerous passes, because for every unfortunate they kill, they cure a thousand.
1: That's interesting. And I just read that last night. It's an interesting and, framing, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, um, but it's, it's very true. It's very true that we need to... You know, even if it's, I don't know, even if it's not exactly, you know, a hiking experience or something, but mm. just getting away, just to like experience sort of the largeness of and beauty of nature, to help us to to put the really the smallness of our our the pettinesses in our lives. In the thing perspective. that's causing
0: us so much stress yeah, and worry. Because yeah,
1: I I will go home feeling like why was I worried about such and such a thing? Yeah. It's just, it's, and well, it's,
0: and a lot of people forget that that stress and worry can actually kill you. Um, oh, yeah. you know, maybe not in the immediate time that it would take to fall off of a mountain. And he is saying like, you can die up here. Yeah. And I was actually talking to this guy, uh, on the AT and he was telling me he's summited Mount Whitney out in Yosemite three times. And he said, every day, each day that I had summited Whitney, somebody died. Somebody first time had a heart attack, second two times fell off. So by that framing, it seems like well, why the hell would you ever do that? It's not safe, right? There is obviously risk in coming up doing some kind of mountaineering, backpacking, whatever. But he is, I think what he's pointing to in this passage is there's also risk in staying home, staying in your comfort, you know, probably eating unhealthy food, like we said, worrying about trivial things. Like, that can kill you, too.
1: Oh, yeah. And not only, like, physically kill you, but just sort of overall just kill your spirit and just kind of mm. make you less of who you were meant to be, you yeah. know? And I just, like, I, I keep thinking of the the movie Cinderella Man and how the wife, I don't know if it, it was a Russell Crowe movie, and he was a boxer. He was uh, okay. James Braddock, and he was... Um, like he's going through the Great Depression and he ended up getting a, the opportunity to fight again and he was going to fight this Max Bear who's, who had basically killed several men and, and, you know, the boxing ring and his wife was saying, no, you, you know, don't go out there and you, you can't do that. And, and I, I think Braddock's thinking was, I can die working on the docks, you know, being in a mm. skyscraper, you know, I could fall off a skyscraper, you know, working at this job or whatever. He's like, you know, I want to go into the ring and do what I was meant to, to do and and i think which goes back to the
0: the passage we talked about at the beginning where he had the near-death experience working in the wagon factory that blinded him which is like yeah you can die working in a factory too yeah Uh, and
1: it's just i don't know i i just when i i get my family's worry and that and i what i have to work through is the ego part of it where I say, whoa, they just maybe if I were younger and thinner and stronger or this or that, maybe they wouldn't say that. They probably still would say it. They'd probably still yeah. worry. It doesn't matter. Um, it it matters how they feel. You know, I care about how they feel about me and that they want me safe and all of that. But it's the idea that you know, this is important. Yeah. You know, I need this. I need to mm. to go and do this.
0: That's great. And in mirror, his kind of mission in life, he said. Quote, I care to live only to entice people to look at nature's loveliness. And then he says, heaven knows that John the Baptist was not more eager to get us all fellow sinners into the Jordan than I am to baptize all of mine into the beauty of God's mountains.
1: Yeah. And, and so sorry, I got distracted, but there's this hawk that's just, <laughs> yeah. just floating on the wind. yeah for for like 15 seconds just there and it was just it was just so beautiful and kind of going to that point and like how and like nobody like we didn't we don't you know we didn't miss that we hmm. got to see that because we're out here yeah you know and well I, and
0: hopefully this podcast will encourage some people to take a hike i,
1: I hope <laughs> so i i i've yeah. been doing a lot of writing um with regard to this and and i there's a part of me that kind of said well you know i don't know if anything i'm writing is ever going to be published or any of that but it's it's just it's that sense of i i want i want to share this with other people mm-hmm. i want them to understand like what it can be like you know what what you know what it's like to be in nature and and just how in a way it's just like a little microcosm a little metaphor whatever word you want to use for like our spiritual journey that we're on and, and how important that is to, to, and not as, you know, not to look at, it's a goal. We're on life to reach a goal. And now the journey itself in, in a sense is like a goal. Mm. The journey itself is the beautiful thing. And, and even the bad quote unquote bad parts of struggles and that, that's all part of this, you know, moment by moment journey. You know, we get to the end of our lives and we suddenly realize, wow, that went by fast. And, I should have appreciated it more while I was doing it. And so I'm trying to learn to appreciate the little moments. And being out here teaches me that. Teaches Mm -hmm. me that when I go back home to, you know, appreciate home from my home in the woods, I guess, to appreciate every little moment and what it means, even when there's struggles. Because it's in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's very small. And that these little things, they're going to pass you know we're a vapor you know we're here for a while and gone nature remains god remains um and yeah so i hope i hope this helps people to get out there
0: well mark this was so great and i appreciate you uh talking to me and coming out here
1: oh it was fun it was fun i enjoyed the hike and the meal and just everything
0: so thank you thanks for listening to unpacking ideas If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and give us a rating or write us a review. All that stuff helps a lot, so thanks for doing that in advance. If you'd like to get in touch with me or to hear about what's coming up next on the podcast, visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast, and there I post links to all of the articles, essays, books that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. And finally, if you would like to hear more from my guest, Mark, and to check out some of his work, visit his website, wordsinvisions.com. That's words, the letter N, visions.com. Mark is an author, a ministry consultant, and a man of words whose mission is to inspire and heal people through his writing. So definitely check out his website. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.